You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank everyone for. By the way, I'm James. I just I'm kind of meeting everyone, so um, I'll give I'll give a little more introduction of who I am. But um, what's your name? It's nice to meet you. Um, so uh, they sort of plugged me in here in between Dr. Bowles's. Um, He's been teaching a, a series on helping others in different situations, such as depression, family issues, things like that. And uh, last semester, I talked to Matt Schneider, um, the pastor over the 5 p.m. service, if uh, you probably all know him, um, and was wondering if I could teach a couple lessons over special needs um, and the special needs community and just kind of thinking through that theologically, uh, how to love on people who have special needs and their families and also just Thinking a little more, um, this week is going to be a little more abstract. I'll be teaching next week as well, and we'll try to kind of move into some concrete things, but I want to get some feedback from y'all as well at the end of the lesson. on If you come back next week, if you don't, again, not going to be offended, but just something that you would like to kind of discuss next week. Um, so this lesson is, um, this is just supposed to be kind of in congruence with what Dr. Bowles has been teaching already, helping others with, and so in the special needs community. Um, <clears throat> so today we're going to be hopefully thinking through special needs in the church, but more con- concretely, I'm going to give us a goal here in a second, but I'd like to just do an introduction on who I am and why I should be talking about this to begin with. Um, this is a picture of my family. Uh, that's me on the left. This is our past Christmas here. Or in, oh, I'm from Orlando, Florida, and this is our past Christmas. And three or four out of the six people in this picture all have some sort of disability, depending on how you count it. Uh, I myself have obsessive compulsive disorder. I was diagnosed with that when I was 11. So whether or not you consider that a disability, it's probably more in the mental health range. But when I was 11, um, my parents noticed that I started washing my hands compulsively to the point that they would start bleeding. Um, so I ended up seeing a counselor. I wouldn't, I guess, consider myself in the disabled realm because it's something that really doesn't keep me kind of ostracized from the community or from uh, actually participating. Uh, with other people, but it, it can get severe enough to be um, at that point. Uh, my dad is uh, next to me there, um, and he has a condition called spinal cerebellar ataxia, uh, which manifested itself in his early 40s. He had a full career as a, an officer in the Air Force and then a subsequent career as a marketing analyst for a company. Um, but currently, though he's in his early 60s, is now unable to drive and has to use a walker to get around um, because his condition affects his cerebellum, meaning that uh, his fine motor skills um, are not as great as they used to be, uh, So, he, and it also affects his balance a lot. So if he were to walk around without a walker, it'd be common for him to fall down. Um, and that's something that's kind of progressively going on and gets worse over time, but fortunately there's some techniques that can kind of combat, can combat that. Uh, my brother here in the front um, is David, and uh, he has Down syndrome. That's kind of, you can see that uh, kind of plainly there. Um, he is 25 at the moment and living home with my family. Uh, next, there, next to him is my mom, and this is my Aunt Joy, my mom's sister, and she also has uh, her own sort of set of learning challenges. Um, she lives at home with us. Um, she is articulate. You can have full conversations with her, but unfortunately is unable to hold a job or drive. And then last but not least is my sister, Melanie, and she's just an angsty teenager. So if you consider that a, a disability or not, that's, that's kind of something. So the reason I tell you all that is not to elicit any sort of pity or anything, but just to kind of give you my context from where we're coming from and why this subject is really personal to me. 
Um, so in addition to that, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a student at Beeson Divinity School, 39 days out from graduation. Woohoo. Um, and it was actually here that I really started thinking through disability a little more because it was just something that was a part of my life. I recognized that it was, our family was different. We were really close um, and we all loved the Lord, but it was also just something kind of normal for me. It was something like my brother had Down syndrome. He had difficulty communicating with people. His schooling was a little different. There were awkward situations, but it was kind of life. I didn't really think about it in any sort of special way until I started getting to school and we started thinking through theological matters such as baptism, such as how is one saved, um, things like that. And I started having to examine our tradition and think about areas that um, are helpful, but then also areas that maybe we could improve on, that we could like re-examine scripture and, uh, and instead of just uh, always thinking about um, salvation in terms of like an intellectual capacity, what does it actually mean to be saved? What does faith actually mean to like put your full trust in Christ? Um, and so that was something that kind of got my mind rolling. Simultaneously, I was working at the Exceptional Foundation, which is a nonprofit here in Homewood. Um, it's a special place for those with special needs, kind of provides um, social interactions and social opportunities for people with special needs while their families are at work. It's, it, bluntly, it's kind of like a daycare for people with special needs, but it's, it's more than that. So that leads us to our goal for today. So to start thinking about biblically about people with special needs and to recognize their contributions to the church. And I want to emphasize that today we're just going to start thinking biblically about it. I don't want to bog anyone down with a ton of information. Um, I don't expect anyone to come away with a huge revelation. I just, if I can challenge you in any sort of way to just get out of our typical mindset where we typically overlook these people, if you can just start recognizing them a little more in the church, then I think we'll have done, um, we'll, we'll have made some progress today. And even more importantly than that, I think recognizing the fact that they are not just objects of charity, but have unique contributions to the church as well. Because too often I think we look at people with special needs in their families and we, um, we pity them and we uh, just sort of uh, kind of patronizingly like push them to the side and think, oh man, this is so sad, we want to help them. But we don't actually um, recognize that they are unique members of the body of Christ themselves and have gifts to offer the church. So with that in mind, we actually have to take a step back. And this is where I said it's going to be, a, today's going to be a little more abstract. So I want to get some feedback at the end and we can talk about more concrete um, things we can discuss next week. But I think what we really need to discuss is to step back and ask the big questions. What does it mean to be human? Because I think we are um, influenced by Western philosophical thinking uh, that's grounded in the intellect and the mind and the rational uh, much more than we realize. And that has filtered down into the church and into just like little ways that we treat people and little ways we think about what it means to be human um, in ways that have actually kind of been detrimental to people with special needs. And so uh, I want to just take a second to examine some of our influences, um, our cultural influences, and then see also how that's impacted the church. And then I want to offer a more biblical understanding of what I think it means to be human. So we need to examine some of our cultural influences. Going all the way back to people like Aristotle, in his Nicomachean Ethics, um, 
Aristotle was incredibly influential in uh, the Western, um, in our Western understanding of what it means to be human, has still been, uh, it's still largely um, captured by the Catholic Church in the way they kind of like view sin and, um, and justice and things like that. And in his Nicomachean Ethics, he's basically writing um, in the, in, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, writing for um, court decisions and justice and things like that. And so he's proposing that, like, uh, in, in situations where someone's accused of a crime, we have to figure out, well, okay, if they actually committed the crime, did they mean to cr commit it? How can we, like, impute guilt to them? Are they really guilty? And that's based upon partially, like, whether or not they have the ability to think through the action that they were committing. And so he ends up coming down and uh, proposing that in order for anyone to ever actually make a choice, they have to have the ability to deliberate. So they have to be able to think through this choice, and only then can we actually say a person is acting or uh, is becoming and forming their character to be virtuous or to be evil. So under his framework, someone who actually can't really deliberate and think through things can never really be a virtuous person. They could potentially participate in virtue. They could do something accidentally that's virtuous, but they can never actually form their character to be what we would consider a good person. So even, even way back in the 300s BC, we're already starting to have this kind of uh, focal point of what it means to be human, uh, emphasizing the mind above anything else. So we can have these other people out there, and they, they may be able to do good things, but they themselves can never actually be considered a good person. Um, this is we see elements of this a little bit in even people like Augustine. There's there's like focuses on the the distinction of humanity from the rest of uh, the rest of the animal world because um, of our ability to think. That's kind of what sets us apart. Um, but it becomes most insidious in the Enlightenment. So when the scientific method really kind of um, takes sway in our society and we want to have empirical evidence for things. We are now in a culture that really emphasizes the material, what we can measure, and what can actually um, be, be given back to society concretely. And so some people that are associated with the Enlightenment, again, this is not at all exhaustive, but you may have heard of Rene Descartes or John Locke. Rene Descartes' most famous statement was, I think, therefore I am. Uh, he and his, that's from a different work, but in his Meditations on First Philosophy, he, if you read the introduction, it's kind of funny because um, it's a little, little arrogant. He basically uh, proposes that he is going to do a logical proof that will, for once and for all, prove the existence of God. And in his thought experiment, he says, you know what? We can't know for sure anything. We can't know that this lectern is here. We can't know that these chairs are here. I can't know that my hands are real. The only thing I can know for sure is that I'm a thinking thing. And he tries to extrapolate from that and like move from one premise to the other to basically reconstruct, okay, now that, now that I know I'm a thinking thing, I therefore know this, and it leads to like being able to say, okay, I actually know that the world is here, and I know that I'm not God, and then we can eventually like kind of prove abstractly that God exists. But the problem with that is that it begins with the self. It doesn't begin with revelation. It doesn't begin with God coming to us. It again begins with our ability to think, which just automatically excludes a whole section of the population who can't do that quite as well. Similarly, John Locke continues with this idea, and he sort of defines humanity as uh, people or, or, or creatures who have the ability to think in abstractions. And following the logical framework of that, he then makes the assertion that rational defects in a person just automatically exclude one from being human. 
And unless we think, okay, well, sure, James, like these are these are Western thinkers, but they really haven't influenced the church too much. Um, even people like our very own Martin Luther in uh, one of his table talks, and maybe he was just influenced. Yes. Wouldn't some of those earlier thinkers also? <clears throat> you're talking about special needs, but right? People of really lower class. Oh, absolutely. They would put them in the same. Certainly, yeah, yeah, and and I um, I, there's definitely like this. So the aristocracy would be elevated above that. I mean, we have the class system in the Greco-Roman world. Um, so yes, I, I I would say that as well. I'm not trying to say that this is exclusively only um, that. If you're a slave who can think well, you're still probably not going to be thought of very well in this in this framework as well. Um, I'm just kind of narrowing in and seeing the. Uh, specific applications for people with special needs kind of through this framework and like how that would work out logically. But even our very own Martin Luther was subject to these sort of things as well. So in a table talk, which if you're unfamiliar with that, that was when he just had some of his students over and they would have dinner together and they would talk about theological matters. And who knows, maybe at this time Luther had a little too much beer. You also have to contextualize him as well, understanding the medieval period that he lived in and a lot of the fears of... Um, of kind of seeing demons a lot around every corner, and I'm not minimalizing spiritual warfare by any means, um, but recognizing that there is their kind of understanding of the way the world works and mental illness and things like that was not great at the time. Um, but someone recorded him saying that in Thousaw there was a 12-year-old boy like this. He devoured as much as four farmers did, and he did nothing else other than eat and excrete. Luther suggested that he be suffocated. Why? He replied, because I think he's simply a mass of flesh without a soul. Couldn't the devil have done this? And as much as he, he gives such sh shape to the body and mind, even of those who have reason that in their obsession they hear, see, and feel nothing, the devil is, is, is himself their soul. So we already see kind of this sort of thinking that if you, if someone exhibits a behavior that falls outside of the norm of our kind of rational thinking, even in the church, we're starting to kind of relegate them and push them to the side as being subhuman. So what does this sort of lead? We see this today, um, even in our own society, even, even as we like to think of ourselves as uh, being incredibly compassionate and humanitarian, we still have a sort of utilitarian view of what it means to be human. Um, we ask if people contribute to society in a, in a tangible way. And if yes, it's great, but if no, we kind of wonder why they're here. And we see this out um, through discrimination. We see this in abortion um, and euthanasia. We, we've kind of cap, like, bookended the beginning and the end of human life. And we give value to whether or not, like, we're able to take care of these people and how much of a burden they really place upon us. And then there's also, to kind of uh, go along with that, a desire to minimize suffering. So we, we convince ourselves that, well, this person can't really have a good life if they're suffering a whole bunch. And so if we want to end it, that's, it's, it's really merciful because to live out a life that is full of suffering isn't actually worth much. So I want to propose something different. Let's go still about 1050. All right, I'm going to try to run through this pretty quickly. That was basically just a critique of, we, we see there's, there's problems there, right? This automatically excludes a large section of society. Um, this is a book that I would highly commend to y'all. It's got a lot of theological jargon in it, but Amos Young, he's a Pentecostal theologian at Fuller, and he tries to say, let's go back and let's re-examine the image of God. 
And instead of trying to say that this is uh, what, what sets us apart is our ability to reason and our rationality, he kind of proposes three things, that to be in the image of God is to be embodied, is to be interdependent, and is to be relational. And I think that we see all of three of these things exhibited uh, most clearly in the person and work of Christ. So real quickly, we're going to go through um, the verses that talk about the image of God. Uh, there's actually, in the Old Testament, really only three explicit ones, uh, and they're all in Genesis. Um, so Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we're, we're given, um, we're told that mankind is made in the image of God, but we don't really get a ton of clarification on what that means. And that's why we've kind of been able to run away with that. We, we start to think about what sets us apart from the animal kingdom and we, we kind of put our ability to think and we say that, okay, well, maybe this is what the image of God means. In other verses, we don't get too much more clarity. Um, Genesis 5, 1 through 3 just really talks about, um, it kind of makes a reference to creation story and then talks about uh, Adam fathering Seth out of his own image. And then in Genesis 9, 6, we have um, the consequence for murder. So whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is significant because it gives us a little more insight in that sin, though it has distorted, it has not destroyed the image of God. So even in our sinful state, we're not like behaving fully as human. We're the only creatures who can kind of act outside of our species. We never look at a dog and say, this dog is doing something undog-like. But there are definitely people who do things that are inhumane. And yet in this, um, we're seeing that even after sin, our humanity is not destroyed. There's still something of the image of God that is retained here. We do start to hear about the image of God again in the New Testament, and it's specifically in relation to Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created for him, or through him and for him. And then this doesn't use image, but it's the same sort of idea. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name, that, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then, I'm not going to read through all of this, but this, uh, this then talks about how so therefore, knowing that Christ is the most perfect image of God, who are we to be? And Paul tells us that we are then to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what's happening is through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we are being made human again when we are united with him by faith. We are being set back to the garden. We are being restored to what it really means to be human. And if you notice, like there's no real emphasis in Christ's life or his death or his resurrection on his ability to think. So in other words, to be human is not to excel in cognitive function. To be human is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Jesus is the perfect human in every sense of the word. So explicitly, 
I think we need to understand that people with disabilities are not somehow subhuman because this is like this idea, even though we would never say it. Again, we live and breathe this kind of Western culture, this Western understanding of, of what it means to be human here. So I think we need to say it explicitly that they're not somehow subhuman. They're not waiting to have their dignity restored to them when they get to heaven. That's something I think that we also we we talk about how well once once the new heavens and the new earth happen, like they'll be free from their disability. They'll be rid of all of the curse of sin and death. And then then it'll be like they're they're kind of finally back on track with us. And we will never say that, but we almost like the way we overlook people, we kind of hint at that. They're not here to be objects of our pity until Christ makes them useful in the resurrection. They're full members of the body of Christ with unique gifts and talents just like you and me. So thinking about that, the questions I want to ask are... Oh, well, then this is actually something else I want to talk about. So again, um, so in Luke 18, 15 through 17, this is a, a well-known passage where Jesus uh, tells the disciples not to prohibit the little children coming from coming to him. I want to highlight the end of 17, though, because he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is incredibly important because in a lot of our traditions, especially in the evangelical world, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we put the emphasis on some sort of one-time decision where we came to a full understanding of what Christ did for us, and then we, we cast ourselves on him. And while I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm saying that I think it's a little... It's, it's incomplete. Um, that, that, that can be one manifestation of it, but our faith and trust doesn't always mean that we can fully explain what Christ did for us. I don't think even the most brilliant theologians can fully understand or comprehend what God has actually done for us. And when Christ says that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, it stands to reason if those of us who think really well are not in our own way somehow disabled because we start to overthink things and we can't we, we kind of lose the ability to just rest in the trust of God. So, the challenge for today, again, if, if we do nothing else, and I'm going to have to wrap up here in a few minutes, um, if we do nothing else today, I'm sorry, I know this has been abstract and kind of long-winded and all this, the, the thing that I wanted to emphasize today was that I want to challenge our Western ways of thinking, and if you leave the classroom today with nothing else, the next time you see someone with a disability, or, or if you have anyone in your family who has a disability or some sort of uh, intellectual impairment, to realize that they are also made in the image of God just as you, and they are no less, and to think about what parts of the body are we neglecting. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, um, 13, and then 25, 21 through 25, Paul writes, for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. And then I took a little liberty and added abled or disabled. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more... Pre which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Um, so 
something I think we need to think about as the Advent, as the church in, as a whole, is when we see these people that don't quite fit in, um, that we shouldn't just view them as needing extra ministry from us, but that we need to find ways that they can actually serve the body of Christ as well, that they um, can fully participate as members and recognize that they have unique gifts to offer. Let's see. What else do I have here? So closing thoughts. Um, May I say something? Yes, please. I feel like those individuals stand to minister to me. Yeah. And if not of themselves consciously, he ministers to me through them. Absolutely. I've definitely um, experienced that. I've had some pretty miserable days. And then when I went to the Exceptional Foundation... And I walked into a room of people who didn't care how I did on my test or didn't care that I was really awkward or didn't care that I stumbled over my words, but were just happy to see me for who I was. Um, It's hard to find a more compelling picture of the love of Christ than just kind of accepting me for who I am and loving me there. Um, It's a wonderful reminder. Uh, the last few things I have to talk about here are just a reminder, again, that these people are unique and loved by God, and we can squabble about the diseases and the disabilities and like what exactly the healing will look like in the new heavens and the new earth, but I think it's significant that the risen Christ still bears the wounds and the scars of his crucifixion. Um, and I, I said this earlier, but like I, I don't think in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone's just going to be exactly the same. And that while while all of the curses, the things that keep us apart and divided are going to be taken care of and our, our ability to relate to one another will be sanctified, um, we're not going to... I don't expect to be an Albert Einstein. I don't expect to understand everything the way... I don't expect to be able to play basketball any better than I can now. I'm an awkward white guy. Um, we're going to have different abilities there. And so there's going to be something redeemed about it, but I think we still will, to some degree, bear the wounds. And so that means that we can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth to to think that these people, it's it's then that they're going to have something to give, and it's then that they're going to have their value. Uh, Christ is already making all things new now. And similarly, going along with that, just to emphasize that, the, the vision that John has in Revelation is of a multitude from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Again, just talking about the diversity. Um, as Dr. Peter Mawish at um, Beeson has said several times, our differences make a difference. We're, we're not going to be a homogenous mass. Uh, we're still going to be unique individuals up there. So questions? Again, I apologize. I was kind of haphazard and all over the place here. This is just... This is sort of setting the stage for next week. We can delve into things that are a little more practical. Um, but if you have any questions, if anything I said just was too rambling and you want me to clarify, please let me know. If you have any suggestions for next week, um, something that maybe is a little more grounded, something that you want to talk about, or just about me and my personal experiences, feel free.
I've noticed at the Advent, because of the size of the church that we yeah. are, we have a significant special needs population here. Right. But because we are spread out over five services, right. we actually have not connected. Um, and so I just want to put that out there as far as the practical part yeah. of our individual conversation, that there is a lot of opportunity when it comes to special needs at the Advent. Right. Um, but I feel like we haven't really tapped into. Um, so there's a lot, lot there. Thank you for bringing that up. I've wondered about that myself because I've noticed every, like, even in this classroom right before we uh, left, I think there was a young girl with Down syndrome. Um, and I've. Really? Okay. I've noticed that as well. And um, I'll see if I can talk to a few clergy people here about things that we can do. (laughs) So. We've been incredibly blessed by the Ministry of Giant Friends. Okay. Right. No, 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 please, please keep, no, like this is, yeah. Thank you, yeah. sent me the email of the guy I've been meaning to connect with him who's, who's working with them so. but there there's hopeful things on the horizon I, I see more and more um, programs popping up and more and more of an awareness um, but there's still there's still a lot to do you know I've noticed <clears throat> my first job was at Homewood Park mm-hmm. when I was 14 which is it was like exceptional though. right contrast between Down syndrome children and severely autistic children in that issue of being able to express affection right. really changes how people feel because you know that so many of the Down syndrome kids are so right. wonderfully affectionate and sometimes the, um, the people way out on the autistic spectrum right. the parents are just starved for um, an embrace or yeah. It's easy for a lot of people in, who have Down syndrome to become kind of the poster children of the disability movements because a lot of times, not all the times, I've met some punks with Down syndrome, um, <laughs> but a lot of times they can be a lot more affectionate. But I mean, yeah, it's talking about disability in general is difficult because it's such a nebulous idea. It doesn't fall into like one, you mean, even amongst people with Down syndrome, there's a range of abilities. And so it's hard to categorize that, let alone the autistic spectrum, let alone a whole bunch of these other like very rare um, disabilities that only you know maybe 500 people may have. Um, I yeah. recently participated in a support group for mothers okay. that Stella did at Cranmer House. Right. And the mothers that gathered there, one of their questions was like, do I belong? Like because hmm. of that nebulous, like that right. how it's hard to define special 
special needs and a disability, some women didn't know, am I a mother of a special needs mm. child? Like that actually was something they had to wow. define. Um, and they surely did. I, yeah. I looked at each of them and said, thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like, but they like, there was even some insecurity in stepping out and saying, do I really qualify? Right. To have, you know, to be in this support group. Right. But they surely did. Oh, absolutely. Certainly. Um, so because there are so many diagnoses and changing in the ebb and flow of challenges. Right. So for next week, um, if any of y'all, I may have bored y'all to death and you don't want to come back, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but is there anything you would like us to tackle next week? Like there's passages in scripture that I think are helpful. I, I think about um, just, and again, kind of challenging some of this when Jesus comes up uh, across the blind man and the disciples to turn to him and say, like, who sinned, him or his parents? And he's like, no one sinned. Like, this was to exhibit the glory of God. There's there's also another passage where we see that, like, the, the relation between sin and disability is somewhat complex because we live in a fallen world and we would say that, like, there's some things about this that just aren't right. Um, but to just attribute that to sin automatically is not a good thing. Uh, and then re-examining passages like Jacob wrestling with the Lord, like he was injured in that wrestling and yet was kind of honored for it in a way. Uh, there's this, uh, this sentence at the end of it where it talks about the Jews don't eat the tendon on the hip. Um, and, and it's kind of this reverential tone to it. Um, and Jacob walks away limping for the rest of his life because of it. And so it's like almost the sign of this, of his blessing with like every step he takes it's a disability, but he's reminded that he's been touched by God and has been renamed from Jacob to Israel. So we could do that. We could talk about, again, just more practical things. Yeah. No, I won't be able to be here next week, um, but also the recording. Maybe you could just worry about this now. I don't want you, I want to look at the Finding ways, yeah, you sort of said something earlier Pay attention, discern uh, abilities, gifts to recruit, identify, recruit, and deploy people with disabilities in the life of our church. Right. Volunteer capacities and whatnot. Right. Any thoughts on that? I had a recent, this came up for me last week. Okay. And um, I said, well, that person would make a, a, a great greeter, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but so do you have any thoughts? Um. So there's an article out by Christianity Today, I think, that was really um, the first one I've really seen about it that kind of focused on this. Um, from my own experience, my brother gives out bulletins at his church and greets as well, and that's like a huge, great ministry for him. Like He just he loves being involved in that, and I think people are, are blessed by it as well. Um, in the Christianity Today article, they talked about like some of these individuals having just the ability to pray really well. And I mean, and I think like there's a, often a genuineness that comes with it that even if you can't understand the prayer entirely, you know that they're interceding on your behalf. Um, and so they will have like these kind of prayer ministries that after the service, be, like, you can go up to so-and-so and ask them for prayer. Um, so it's certainly there will be certain things that um, they won't be able to complete just because of their abilities. Uh, there are other things I think that are easy to plug them in, such as greeting, such as praying. 
Um, and then I think there will just require some creativity to think through other aspects, which we can explore. Um, but I wonder if we need to think it, I mean, yes, we need to think it through. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the abilities come at it through trial and error. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think for myself, sometimes not being afraid of the error yeah. It as an opportunity to learn and to find those undiscovered, unknown abilities. I think, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's part of the reason we typically don't like to talk to people with special needs is because we're afraid we're going to mess up or we're going to say something wrong. Um, well, I do that all the time anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, but correct me if I'm wrong, in my experience, it's like... No, please come talk. Ask questions. Um, don't assume that we and our families don't want to like actually engage. It, it's more hurtful, I think, when people behave awkwardly and then don't know what to do, and then they walk away, and then you just you people are left alone. So. I have a funny story to end. Yeah, go for it. So Tucker's aunt has a mental disability, and she lives, you know, she's pretty self-sufficient. Yeah. She lives just down the street from Tucker's mother and um, holds a job and everything that she Very can cool. drive and yeah. some other things. And so we were visiting Tucker's grandmother a couple weeks back and she said, I just don't know what I'm going to do with Laura. And we were like, oh, you know, what's the problem? And she said, well, they're kicking her out of the choir again. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a really funny thing where Laura really wants to sing and be involved in the choir at church. But some of the members of the church are complaining because, well, she sings really loudly. Sure, she's yeah. not great. Yeah. And she's like, I'm just sick and tired of these people not having the, I don't know, the courage or yeah. the strength or whatever to just approach Laura and say, you can't sing in the choir because you can't sing. <laughs> you know, let's find something else, some other way for you to serve. She said, I'm tired of that being my responsibility sure. to help. And it's just a really funny thing that they're, just, they're kicking her out of the choir right. again. I think, though, like... <laughs> Even things like that, because, yes, there are some people who don't have the ability to sing um, well. There are plenty of people like myself who don't have the ability to sing well. But I think even those things could be reapproached in recognizing that they're trying to praise God. And like none of, and, and, and this isn't like any sort of rebuke of you or anything like that. Don't, don't take it that way. Um, but, like, so what if she sings loudly and off-key? I mean, desperation by Tucker's mamaw was just like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, right, 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 yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely get that, I completely get that, um, but, Okay, well, if you all have any other ideas, um, feel free to email Matt or 
yeah, shoot an email to Matt at Cathedral Church of the Advent, um, and I will try to think of like some more things to talk about and discuss, hopefully in a more practical element next week. Um, but thank you all for coming. Thank you. Glad, yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.